Hello and welcome to the Sitcom Club podcast number three. I'm Mooncat and joining me as ever are Europa Ojo. Hello. Boggin Strovia. Hello. And with details of this week's sitcom in question is Dr. Christian Joy. Hello. This week on Sitcom Club we uncover the details behind Marion and Jeff, originally aired on the BBC Two in 2000 with the second series following in 2003. A prequel was aired in between which we'll be covering, as well as the first series, today on Sitcom Club. Thank you very much, DCT. So, Marion and Jeff. Um, now, um, if we... For anybody who hasn't seen it at all, I'm sure that people listening to this will have seen at least one episode or so. Um, but we should uh, get across the fact that uh, it's, it's sort of like a, there's a little bit of um, continuity here, because uh, podcast number one, we spoke about Still Game, which is an ensemble piece. Uh, podcast number two, we spoke about Up Pompeii, which is very much a vehicle for the star, Frankie Howard. And now, in podcast three, we're going to basically a vehicle for one single person. Uh, because apart from the special that we'll be talking about later on, Money and Jeff features just one character uh, in the shape of Rob Brydon. Um, so basically, you have Rob Brydon as Keith Barrett, and he is always behind the wheel of his car, and he's talking to the camcorder and telling us uh, about his the ins and outs of his life um, and it's I think it's fair to say DCT that it's, it's very much like a, a jigsaw, it just it sort of pieces together over the weeks, you're encouraged to keep on watching it uh, because originally the episodes were only 10 minutes long Yes, absolutely, in the um, original run of the first series, 10 minutes long each gives just about enough time uh, to potentially, in it, well in a very particular sense, uh, cover certain anecdotes, certain elements of Keith's life. We, we learn more and more about him as we go along. We learn about uh, why the series is called Marion and Jeff, because when you come into this, there's there's not Marion, there's not Jeff. It's this man behind the wheel of a car talking to the camera. Uh, soon enough, we learn that's Keith, played by Rob Brydon, and that Marion is his ex-wife, and Jeff is the partner she's now with, including uh, being involved with their two kids, Reese and Alan, um, which he's absolutely doting over very early on you get the impression that he's uh trying to reason with the situation he's in he's trying to deal with it by um giving gifts to reese nallen visiting them when he can uh that he's a good father when he's given the opportunity um which is rare because marion and jeff he describes them as the perfect couple he says he likes jeff he's constantly trying to convince himself that the situation he's in is the right situation but from the get-go you pretty much aware of the fact that he's he's not happy he's just trying to get through with it grand and let's just get initial thoughts from the team um ocho first of all what were your thoughts on Marion and jeff I, I watched the first six and it was okay it wasn't a masterwork and i think in terms of in terms of a jigsaw uh i felt the first episode pretty much put all the edges and corners in place yeah, having never seen it before, there wasn't really much by the end of episode one that I was kind of doubtful about. I think everything else after that was was details. But yeah, it was okay. And um, small summer party, not so okay. Well, we'll, we'll come on to a small summer party later because, of course, that is uh, an entity uh, in its own right. It's I think it's fair to say it's unique um, in the the canon. Um, Boggan Strovey, what were your thoughts on and Jeff? Well, it was a uh, bit. It showed up the um, uh, first series of 10 minutes that basically uh, it's almost like um, 
now where you get on YouTube, say, people doing monologues, but obviously back then there weren't uh, people doing that sort of thing, so it was brand new and fresh. But um, as the series went on into the half hours, it gave more to uh, expand uh, Keith's world and with uh, the special, uh, which we'll be talking about later, that I didn't, it it didn't really work for me. Okay, it um, sets out what happens, but as a thing, it it doesn't feel quite right. Okay, um, DCT, see yourself in just a second to, to go through the, the individual episodes of series one. One thing I just want to throw out uh, early on is that uh, this will be a, effectively a sort of uh, a spoiler-free podcast. We won't be touching too much on series two, and we won't be touching on anything to do with the overall conclusion to the series, just in case uh, it's something that you're about to start watching after listening to ourselves. Um, but we will obviously be discussing everything that goes on in series one and the, the special, which is in between the two series. Um, DCT, one thing that I did like about Manon and Jeff uh, this this came across quite strongly with um, regard to the choice of uh, incidental music, even things down to you can see that the auto focus is working on the camcorder and so on. Attention to detail is obviously very important in this series. Um, we talked briefly off air before we we began about uh, particular pieces of music being used uh, throughout the shows. Um, one that springs to mind is use of the Beach Boys um, and the particular lines in, in the song um, we could get married then we'd be happy. It's, it's perfect uh, to the, uh, the the conversation that um, uh, Keith has just been relating uh, about uh, how himself uh, and Marion uh, met in the first place. But if you can talk us through a little bit about the first, say, the first sort of um, three to four uh, episodes of the series before we go around the table again. Well, something that becomes established from pretty much the first episode is um, the use of props. When you have one character in one location uh, consistently, um, aside from anecdote, banter, generally going into the mind of that single character, it also is beneficial to have the use of props. And from the get-go, uh, one of the main things, of course, because we know that Keith is very much devoted to his two children, Reese and Alan, um, the props becomes particularly significant. Uh, Toys with Children, um, you know, it's an element of pathos as well, uh, are pretty much predominant in episodes 1, 3, 4, 7, and 9. Um, uh, the gun, is, which is the name of the second episode, is, is the prop in episode 2. Flowers and Tigger and Eel in episode uh, 4. Uh, the phone in episode 5. Children's photos in episode 6. Monkey masks for the children in episode 7. A child's drawing in episode 8. Uh, two lucky suits. Uh, the one he bought for Portugal, which I'll get back to shortly, and the one he got married in uh, in episode 9. And a very brief glimpse of a laundry bag uh, in episode 10. But in those early episodes... Uh, what is established essentially is uh, isolation. Um, there's a sen- definite sense of loneliness, which is reflected on uh, later on. The fact that uh, there's a revelation uh, in episode 10 that for the last month or so, it's implied that these last 10 episodes have taken place within a month, uh, that he, as a cab driver, he hasn't had really had any jobs going because he had it switched on the wrong, the wrong uh, radio channel. Um, 
so it's kind of appropriate that we really are taking a glimpse into someone who is very much alone at this point. But what is also interesting, in the second episode, um, we see him answering... He, he's listening to the radio at one point, and it's um, and it's a, it's a quiz, and we see him then going to a phone booth, and he leaves the radio on in the, in, in the, in the car so we can hear him and the uh, DJ answering the questions. And they're all children... Relate, all related to children television shows, and he gets every single one right, which just is a little nice little element of it because it's him. Sort of, he wins seventy pounds. He just takes the money. He could go much further up. He gets every single question right. He wins seventy pounds, and he considers that an investment for his for his children uh, because at that point, all he's got left uh, he hasn't. Because what makes him think about not having really anything to pass on to his to his children after he dies is the fact that the one thing he inherited was a gun from his father and what's interesting about that is that the fact that it's not really mentioned until a couple of episodes later that his father shot himself after uh, a few days after his mother had died um but of course you know at this point we've seen the gun uh which is used extremely well uh, in terms of um because he's using you know because the telescopic lens is is disconnected so for the most part we see because Keith, you know, he, he one of his, he, if he had a catchphrase, it's "I'm a bit early, I'm a bit early," and um, he so when he goes and visits Marion and Jeff to go and pick up the kids or see the kids or see them, um, he's often there looking through the telescopic lens, and when he finally gets it fixed, of course, he's using the telescopic lens that's now attached to a gun. So of course, you've got this consistent element of mental illness, this element of uh, he's accused of being a stalker. Further down the line, in, in a few episodes on, uh, we see Keith, um, we see his mind wandering. Um, he finally gets a phone in episode five, and we see his mind wandering. We see him go, um, you know, we see him, um, oh, I spoke, spoke to Medal on the, uh, at the phone, at the phone company. And, and, we, we, the audience, we have the privilege of sharing his 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 mindset there because he's going, well, you know, it's the mind. The mind's weird. It makes you wonder. It makes you wonder where it goes. I reckon she's she's wearing orange, and then suddenly it goes, oh, she's in a cornfield, and suddenly it's, oh, well, she might be wearing a bathing suit. You don't know she's not, because she might be wearing a bathing suit. And then of course he rings her up and asks her what she's wearing, and suddenly we're thrown back into reality and realise that that's not the right thing to say on the phone to someone at the phone company. So it's, it's quite interesting because we are sharing a very personal insight um, of this character, this lonely character, and what makes, it, what makes him a likable character, and he is essentially the only character to, to be liked, um, is, is the element of pathos and um, honesty. There's a lot of honesty going on there. Uh, and also, he's, he's a very optimistic man. He's... He always says, "I'm not a fool." Boy, you know. But then again, he is the same guy who goes down, who goes to France, believing of a passing glimpse, a passing uh, uh, comment from Marion that that you know that he should be going to see Marion, Jeff, and the kids at Disneyland. But it all at Disneyland Paris, uh, Disney World Paris. But it all falls back on him, and we don't know, we don't see what happens. But all we know, once again, the use of the props, the flowers beforehand, and the flowers after completely battered and he pulls out very sadly he pulls out Disney, he pulls out from the Disney store bag he pulls out Tigger and Eeyore and he puts them together and and you know and that's the two boys he's got one for each each of his sons and he just it's a really sad moment he's just you know like yeah. embracing I mean, that, them that, it's that, very that sad episode um, 
sort of threw me uh, when I saw it because I was sort of half expecting, given the build up to it uh, and the fact that he's decided to to take this journey on the Euro Tunnel and what have you, um, I was thinking of a particular line from Peep Show uh, when Mark decides he's going to launch into the restaurant and announce his big idea in front of all the bosses and the whole time that he's about to do this he's saying in his mind this is definitely a good idea there was no possibility of this being a bad idea and that's what i was thinking in this case and i thought this was going to lead to i knew obviously we weren't going to see anybody other than keith but i i was expecting this to lead to some sort of uh sort of farcical situation maybe he comes back with bandage on his head or something like that and something's gone catastrophically wrong and as you say, we actually don't find out uh, what what's happened. I think he does say something to the effect of he didn't get a chance to to give the toys to the kids. So you don't know whether he um, he, he saw them, if he got entry to the place, or whatever it may be, or if he was just sort of uh, given cold shoulder. Um, and yeah, that that's quite a, a subdued uh, ending uh, to that particular episode. Um, that one episode five when you spoke about the um, the phone. Um, thank you to, to Ocho for uh, identifying uh, the piece of music that was playing throughout that. It was, let me just check, it was suite number two in B minor, um, Bach. Uh, and the fact that that's playing in the background, and as soon as he came up with that line, because that was the first episode of Mind Jeff I ever saw, saw that at the time, um, sort of out of sequence, so to speak, just caught it accidentally, I think it was a BBC choice at the time. And as soon as he came up with that line, what are you wearing, and the music just stops. Uh, and it's a real mouth, sort of a real cringy sort of I'm Alan Partridge sort of moment, um, of which there's not really that that many uh, in in the show. Uh, but yeah, that one uh, stands out a mile. Um, Are we to take it that that music was playing in the car? That's diegetic music, yeah. Yeah, I really liked that. I I really liked that because. Um, Unlike unlike a few a few things are fairly well signposted and then explained, I just really liked the idea that he was ha- deliberately having that on in the background so the person on the other end of the phone could hear him, and it made him sound sophisticated. And the fact that it was also the same piece of music every time, so it was really blatant. Uh, it's a bit like do you remember Sean Shaw? Was it the second series when the, the phone rings and he's just about to go, Oh, hang on, a minute, I listen to jazz now. <laughs> And he puts a really loud jazz CD on before he picks up. Yes. Yeah. That was that was a nice bit of business. The the <laughs> just the same piece of Bach every time. Yes. As if it's, if it's maybe like a CD he got from petrol station or something. Yes. And there's a couple of in regards to the music. There's a couple of uses of catatonia, which always seem to work appropriately. Of course, because he comes from a Welsh background as well, so catatonia works anyway. But. Uh, bulimic beats uh, is very significant. Um, it's used in episode six, which is known as the second hottest day, which essentially is the anecdotal telling of what will then become a small summer party. Um, now, with with um, with that, you uh, oh sorry, and just to also add, Catatonia, um, everything is beautiful, is added at the end of episode ten, um, when which is quite interesting because. The way they cut between scenes in that is just the do 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 do, and it's just this. It's just sort of like a kind of ho hum kind of. This is it. it it's kind of used in a way that it, it. It's from the same song from from Catatonia, but it, it's basically implying that 
oh, things are actually on the up. And they are. Um, in that last episode, episode 10, because there's hints throughout in the first series that, that he's got stomach problems. In fact, in the birthday episode, he spends uh, his day... He goes to the doctors... He goes to the hospital for the first time in six years. Um, he, uh, he, he damages his hand. He, has a, he goes to see uh, Mr. Redford, uh, the solicitor, um, and ends up in tears, role-playing... Um, what might be said to him in court for the for a future for a forthcoming divorce hearing, he he ends up um, and most significantly most significantly um, he he ends up scuffing his hand on the way out of the office, and he basically regales how he's he, he bends his wedding ring, and then he tries to remove it with pliers, and we later see him without. Well, you see him, he, he's ha- his wedding ring is damaged. His wedding finger is damaged and he hasn't got the wedding ring on, which initially works as kind of a passing gag because it cuts out as he's remo- taking the pliers and you hear just a little whimper of, um, just, as he's, just as he's pulling it off. But actually, it ends up becoming quite um, a cathartic moment for the next episode when he has, goes to the divorce hearing and he's sitting there after the divorce hearing and we see him pull off the remain of the bandage of of the, his wedding ring which no longer of course has the ring on so it's quite well thought out in that respect as yeah. well um you're talking about certain bits being telegraphed and what have you um i like the fact that this was it, it wasn't too obvious uh, a couple of minutes before he's trying to use the pliers to take the ring off he says uh, the doctor had said to me i don't want to see you here again for a long time and in certain sitcoms, that would be very, very obviously telegraphed, and you'd know what was coming next. But it's it's almost just like you're sort of thinking, is he saying that because he's going to lead to something, or is he just saying that because maybe he just keep got the doctor's nerves? One other thing I liked in that that episode, well, not not that particularly liked, but I, I just sort of um, uh, could sympathise with it, is when he said he was going to have a barium meal. Anybody had a barium meal uh, around going around the table? Anybody ever had it? No, if anybody hasn't had it, imagine leaving a pint of milk out in the sun for about three weeks and then knocking it back in one go. That's what it's like. So, what they keep to remarkably yeah, no well. Choice. Yeah, well, exactly, yes. Um, that's a cryptic comment for people who should be listening to another uh, show, perhaps. Um, but yes, um, Boganstrovia, what were your thoughts? We'll come on to the, the, the later episodes in season one shortly, but what were your thoughts in terms of the overall the overall style of the show? The fact that it is a ten minute show, um and just the the overall sort of format of it. Um what were your thoughts on that? Basically in the ten minute style it's uh that you can only get it it is basically a monologue to camera it is, you know. With uh, Bryden in character speaking um, as Keith Barrett, uh, but like you said, it it's almost like Barrett's having to do this for his own um, mental health, like it's therapy for him. Otherwise, uh, you know, with what's gone on in his own life, that he's having to do it to to clear the sort of air and try and move forward. So it, it does work as a sort of 10-minute piece that um, he really it is, it's Bryden's own thing 
but where he's not what you call a comedian, having come from uh, well, a presenting and voiceover background, you couldn't really say that he was a comedian like his um, uh, comedy uh, cohort, uh, Steve Coogan, having come from the world of impressions. And in that that he he can sort of uh, you know he plays it more as a drama than a comedy. There are comedic lines, but whereas he developed the character when he was at drama college, that Bryden um, he he makes it such that the character is is you know the. Of all what we've looked at in all the sitcoms, uh, Keith Barrett is, you know, he's most like an actual person, you know, going through these uh, things uh, with his uh, children, his situation. It does seem more real. Yes. Um, And I just want to ask... Uh, DC, if, if you can touch on episode 6, and I'll come back to you because I know this is uh, one of the episodes that you've seen in preparation for this. Um, DCT, tell us about the significance of episode 6 uh, in relation to the overall canon and, of course, and the special that then follows. Um, it kind of, well, it essentially leads on from the fact that um, prior to episode 6, we, uh, we, we received little hints of Marion, Jeff, and Keith. Um, we are informed prior to episode six, we're informed that uh, there was a man called Gary that was to marry Marion, who is essentially a prototype of Jeff. And by that, I mean Keith even then justifies, but I liked him. Um, but he was killed. Uh, Marion and Keith connected through mourning when Keith's grandfather died. Uh, we learned that the honeymoon involved uh, Marion essentially going to where Gary had died as a pilgrimage. Um, so it was never really truly about them really connecting as, as it should have been. Um, essentially when uh, Keith speaks to Father Paul for guidance who even says you don't need the church you need a bloody good solicitor um, that connects the dots to Mr. Redford Mr. Redford at the beginning of episode 6 we're informed um, needs to know about the day that Keith found out that Marion and Jeff had been having an affair so this leads on to what is known as the second hottest day it was the second hottest day and this was this was the day that Keith found out um, that Marion and Jeff were together. Now, the thing is about this is that they that he never... He, he tells us in explicit detail um, and little moments as well, very articulately, very little significant moments about that day. But when it actually comes to the moment that we think where he will say, ah, well, and then I saw them, it skips it. Um... To put it in context, uh, he describes how it was Edie and Nev, who were the parents of Marion, Derek with a hi-fi video camera, Karen and Charles, the new neighbours, Jeff, um, Marion's bosses. Marion was being presented with a 3 Series BMW. Uh, He says he put the paddling pool out, he's skimming it for insects. Very significant line, he goes, even a dead wasp can sting. Uh, Presentation, the car had a big ribbon on it. Um, He went back to the barbecue, a toast for the happy couple. They got the champagne out. Uh, Derek, now this this is a weird one because with Derek, um, he refers to the character of Derek, um, when we finally get to see a small summer party which essentially is, is the found footage telling 
of this 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 day. Um, Derek's never referenced. As far as I'm, I'm concerned, he is the first cameraman. But apparently Derek says he saw them go upstairs. Keith thought Marion had gone to show Jeff the Velux window. I think Jeff addresses him once. Just nods at him and says, Derek? Ah, potentially. So, yeah, he's. I think he's the first cameraman. He's the primary cameraman. Yeah. Um, because beyond that, we never see him. He's one. Of, he's the only character we never actually see, even in other, from through the other people's character, uh, other other people's cameras. Um, but uh, yeah, one of Marion's bosses tries to open a bottle. Keith stops him. Um, we, uh, Keith goes upstairs, notices a telephone phone cord in a loop, uh, which is a very particular detail. Or someone could break their neck on that. Uh, Nev, Marion's dad, comes out of a toilet. Nev, your tiger. Never actually says that in the what we see. But Keith says for him to look at the Velux window, something also we don't see. But Nev goes ahead of him, which does happen, and then in contrast to the anecdote in episode 6, in the small summer party, the uh, camera just falls down the stairs. Um, it's almost exactly the way that Keith reacts in the anecdote in episode 6. It's just this blank, because then he runs back down to the garden, everyone starts eating, he feels usurped and tries to get control. Uh, everyone's looking up to the window... Uh, we hear Nev shouting at Marion. He says he heard Nev shouting at Marion. Jeff's bottom at the window, that's the thing we don't see. Um, but nevertheless, it's regaled in Keith's anecdote in episode 6. Inappropriate laughter, something else we don't really get. Uh, you get the impression that everyone is pretty much... Come come the, come the when we actually see the event occurring, you generally get the impre- impression that everyone feels very sorry for Keith. And they're just running along with it. Uh, Keith burns his arm on the barbecue. They come down to the garden. Jeff is wearing Keith's dressing gown. Um, why he's wearing Keith's dressing gown is not referred to directly. Uh, the fact that we, in in the in the in in the found footage, uh, you know, small summer party special, we see the reason why that is is because Nev chucks his suit onto the barbecue. Um, Nev takes a swing at Jeff, which we briefly see, but um, uh, Jeff falls into the padding pool. Jeff gets stung by a wasp. Um, he has to the front. He's blocked in. Um, Keith helps him get into the car, but uh, you know, and, and moves one of the cars, but it's the wrong car. That he blocks him out. Um, a very odd moment. Uh, he basically says, "Marion came out with the ribbon with a knife." Keith, uh, she, she cuts the ribbon with a knife. Although she, you know, when she comes out with it, it's you know, Keith pure on instinct. He's been holding this burger all the time. Taps on the window. Marion winds it down. He gives her the burger. Um, now he says the ribbon came off halfway down the street. She actually, in, when we see it, she takes, rips it off, and drives off again. Um, Keith collects it after they've driven off. Now, this is all regaled in episode six, and it is pretty much the. It's, it's, it, it unlike it's it's unlike all the other episodes because it is someone telling you a very personal story, but somehow it, it somehow it's missing. It's 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 what's great about it is it's 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 Rob Brydon creating this story, being a storyteller, but we don't. It's it's sort of piecing all the pieces together, but this is from the perspective of a character who is in denial and who is not saying everything he knows. And so it becomes, it works on this other level for me personally. It's this whole other thing going on. Um, which is why, for me, it's very interesting then to compare that with the real deal, because there are significant differences. Yeah. Um, i got a couple of thoughts on this particular episode, um, but before I mention them, let me go first to uh, Boggan's trivia, but first of all to Ocho. Ocho, what are your thoughts on that particular episode? It didn't work for me. It's like Godot coming on, saying, hello everybody, I'm Godot. I was born in Blackburn in 1938, and uh, I went to school. It's just, we've been told, we've seen, we, you know, that 
the whole thing of Marion and Jeff is it's one person's point of view. We have to fill in our own blanks. We have to work out how reliable he is as a narrator. And this is just kind of like, right, this is exactly what happened. And, I mean, really, really clumsy in some ways. There's there's that thing, the first time we see Marion, the camcorder sweeps oh, past. Sorry, sorry. Yeah? Sorry, sorry um, I was referring to episode six. Oh, episode six is the, fine. Uh, no, episode five. six is completely yeah. fine. No, it works. There's some nice lines in it. Uh, I, I like the stung by... You can be stung by a dead wasp, by the way. My mum was stung by half a wasp. And uh, d- b- bizarrely enough, she had to have her wedding ring cut off. Half a wasp stung her finger. <laughs> oh, there's half a wasp on the floor. I pick that up and throw it... Ow! Um, no, p- episode six works. It was. It works... Um, it's one of the... After I sort of said, you know, by the end of episode one, I felt that everything else was details. It wasn't so much that I needed more of a picture here. But this, you know, it, it, this filled in the details very nicely and it got some nice lines and it, he builds up an interesting picture. So episode six is completely fine. Um, Bogan Strovia, what were your thoughts on episode six? Yeah, it's uh, the sixth episode... Uh... Like Ocho was saying, you know, it it tells you what actually happened on the day, right? But it's also the chance that um that it's written that uh Bryden can add in, you know, extra bits of detail, like the um being the wasp, you know, to to make it uh it may seem serious but it's those little bits of flight of fancy which uh gives it its sort of shine really it does and uh he he can uh play it straight with this episode that it is a sort of um here's a story here it is from my point of view it is up to you to decide when I've told you what you think about this. And for the audience, that's good. It means that they can think for themselves and try and put all the pieces together and, you know, see where it does tie in or not. Um, things that, that struck me about this episode, one was uh, that when he's relating the story, it's it's almost because of the way that he's he's telling and he's telling it at such speed. To 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 the listener, it's almost as if he's trying to give sort of equal billing. He's giving parity to um, what was happening upstairs between Marion and Jeff, and the fact that um, Keith wasn't getting any um, uh, balance or wasn't wasn't um, um, Keith didn't have any authority over the barbecue. Um, and the way that he's he's relating this, he's it's almost like to a point where what's happening in the house is is, is like the, the sort of the, the subplot. Um, and now he's describing in, in very um, great detail the fact that everybody is just sort of a free for all. Nobody's got sausages and burgers and and, and so on and so on. Um, but also there's a particular line in there which is very very revealing. But as with a lot of the things in the series itself uh, doesn't isn't laboured um, and isn't dwelt upon too much. Uh, he talks about the fact that Mannion's father had gone ahead 
into the room and the Kiefer had gone downstairs and gone back into the garden and Kiefer said, I didn't want to get involved. Uh, and to use a line like that, given what he's discussing, given the circumstances, he's talking about the breakup of his marriage, that's a really, it's such a, a sort of a heartbreaking line to come out with. Um, and of course, as we'll talk about, that that, uh, that line almost just sort of sums up that entire um, special, the small summer party. Um, we'll talk a bit more about sort of ourselves filling in the blanks as far as what we think uh, Keith knew and what his motivations were and so on. But DCT, if you can just um, conclude on the remaining episodes in season one, first of all. Well, um, episode seven is... Uh as far as I'm aware, mostly a filler episode. Um, it starts off with Keith at the airport. Uh, the flight uh, to pick up a, someone, he speculates it could be a celebrity. The flight, however, is delayed by five hours, so he decides to go off to a safari, uh, which I think for the most part serves as a light relief following the, sort of the heaviness of the previous episode. He briefly touches on Marion as a mother, and Keith is almost like dejected again. He sort of like goes down again as sort of, the, you know, he says, oh, describes him as a perfect family. So like he sort of, you know, um, but he also confides that Keith's mum died on the Thursday and the following Monday his father shot himself um, in this episode. So it's a slight element. But the, the, the weird thing about that is the way that's, that's edited in is because straight after that, this episode is called The Monkeys. But the thing is about that, the only, Keith discovers, uh, we don't see the monkeys. We see camels in the background and so forth. We don't see monkeys. Keith goes off to see the monkeys and discovers they've been shot due to a virus. Um, we then see him picking up monkey masks for the children. So it actually becomes more about, the focus is actually more about the children than the fact that he actually saw any monkeys. Um, and this, the music that precedes that is Don't Fence Me In. Sorry, that follows on from that is Don't Fence Me In. Um, the next one is his birthday one, which is where a lot of things happen in one day. Um, you know, he's very optimistic at the beginning of it, but by the end of it, he said it was pretty much a waste of a day. Um, you know, he, uh, he, First time he visited the doctor in six years due to stomach problems, he turns off the camera um, to answer a message from Mr. Redford, gets a date for the divorce hearing, 18th of April. Um, Mr. Redford um, role plays with, with him, uh, he goes to a meeting and he ends up in tears, uh, damaging on his hand, hand on the way out, bending his wedding ring. Uh, he has the bearing meal, uh, he's told he's, it's trapped wind and considers it generally a wasted day, damages fingers using the pliers and then receives a picture from the children which he's looking forward to the next day. And um, rather forebodingly, it's, well, I say forebodingly, in relation to the prequel that we then, we see after the first series, um, it's a picture of uh, him with his head being shot off, um, drawn by his children. Um, but also we see Keith, uh, in those episodes, we see Keith's life. He says, he says in this audience, my life's been touched by death. Uh, my father, my mother, my marriage. Um, in the same... You know, in the same uh, situation, he describes how he once saved Jeff from choking, but then drifts into this whole moment where he has thoughts of strangling. It's like, oh, how can you know? It's it's weird. You think you think you wouldn't strangle someone, but but he never refers to him directly. But it's quite clear that that it is. Um, we're also it's also then heavily implied that Reese um, is having trouble at school. That he's obsessed with serial killers. Uh, that that. Um, the reason, you know, although it's a nice thing that he's picking up litter by the uh, by the lake or whatever it is, um, it's better than detention. Uh, it kind of indicates, you know, that this is the same uh, child that drew the picture uh, that we saw previously. 
Um, and then we have the divorce hearing. The divorce hearing, um, it's significant because he, he takes a little bit of action there. Um, we see him, he picks two suits. Uh, one is Portugal, Portugal referencing the one time where um, Nev paid for a holiday for them after they had a, had a crisis. And for the first time in a long time, um, he made her laugh and he bought one of the suits, a suit he bought that he never wore. Uh, that's him. That's that scene. Eventually, he settles on the, his wedding. To, for, to go to the divorce hearing, he settles on the suit he wore on his wedding day. Um, and uh, even when he leaves the car, we see him sort of put his hand up to a car to cross the road. He's kind of taking charge. We see him repeat uh, and pa- panically repeating what he needs to learn, which is: um, for the last five years, I provided sole parental care of our two children, Reese and Alan, while my wife embarked on an affair of a sexual nature, sexual nature with her colleague Jeffrey Pike. I'm suing to for divorce on the grounds of adulterous behavior and mental distress. And he, he starts to uh, stammer on adulterous behavior and mental distress. Adulterous distress, mental behavior. And it's sort of all sort of, yeah. Um, but then, symbolically, he gets out of that. He takes off, uh, you know, he, he basically raises um, a packet of Pringles and a apple ties, I believe, um, to, uh, to uh, my new life, to my children, to Marion and Jeff. Originally, it's to my new life, and then he adds as he goes along. But he symbolically takes off the bandage around his wedding finger, now without the wedding ring. But uh, episode 10, it, you could almost see that as kind of a... It's the penultimate episode of that series, but actually then episode 10 is him turning it around. Episode 10, he's in a loud shirt, he's optimistic. Um, uh, he's now busy because he's now on the right radio channel. The benefits people caught up with him said, are you working? He said, well, I'm meant to be, but I haven't had any... Had any uh, you know had any jobs going on? Turns out it's on the wrong radio radio uh, channel. Um, he turns off the camera to speak to Marion, but at the same time he then um, Mar- you know he, he complains. He says he says uh, Marion's got an issue with the car. He says oh he should, she should be talking to Jeff about this. Because one thing we uh, that's important to mention from episode nine, of course, is that um, the divorce hearing doesn't go through. Uh, uh, Keith Keith um, drops it because he feels that Mr. Redford, his solicitor, is being far too aggressive to Marion. So obviously at this point, Marion's kind of obviously taken a, an interest, but he receives another call from Marion and rejects it outright. Um, now before this, I'm not entirely sure, and um, we were saying earlier about sort of certain lines that work really well. There are, there are a couple of clunky lines. Um, where, you know, It's implied that he's staying in a place with Declan and the boys, who are implied being a bit younger than him. They set up a website for him, and there's this whole thing about, oh, they've set up a site... Uh, Please, you can you view my morning log and my evening log, and it's kind of a little bit clunky on the Because he's, he, he's previously related, I think in episode one, he's related about the fact that he's living uh, along with um, a group of students, um, and I think he even makes reference to the fact that uh, they are noisy, but uh, I get used to the music, and if I've got my my door closed and I've got my head under the pillow, then it's just a, a dull thud. Yeah, that's the thing. It's yeah, and it's. And based on the prequel, we then see it kind of makes sense that he can deal with that almost, I think. Um, but yeah, and the fact that Marin invites Keith for a meal, um, he just outright pretty much doesn't even go for it. But the fact that Keith then confesses he met, he's meet, he met someone at the laundrette called Teresa who's got four children, River, Marco, Brooke and Sonic, twice divorced. Um, but what what gets to him, I think this is the whole, this is very significant, is that what, what brings him to the fray, what, what um, attracts him back to her is that she calls him a good dad. Um, and and for the benefit of Rob Brydon consistently referencing this further down the line, he was also sort of flattered that he told her he looked look a bit like Al Pacino. Um, 
But uh, yeah, and the thing is, he also hints that his stomach's improved, but then he cuts to a phone call before we get to it. Um, and then, of course, on his way to a job interview, as everything's looking up, there's a car accident. And we're left... Now, if you watch it on the DVD where they've stitched all ten episodes together, they've got this running moment that, that separates the episodes where it's kind of the wind in the background. It's the, it's, it's the sight of a camera filming... It's, well, it's a camera filming... Um, the coast as you're driving, you know, driving along in a car. Um, and it's only at this, in the, you know, after this, this car accident that we see this shot again and we realize it, it's put into context because we pull back out of that and suddenly on the dashboard where the camera was before, it's now Teresa. Teresa is the prop of this episode and, and her family pulls back and we can hear Keith's voice and Teresa's driving the car and her children in the back. And although we see a little, we wind over to him. We see that he's a little bit. He's got damaged nose and he's a little bit damaged from the car accident. He's okay, and um, yeah, and it and it and it and it fades out. Um, and of course, we've got um, our, our prequel, uh, and then we've got series two. But I was thinking at the end of series one that although I am looking forward to seeing series two, in a way, I sort of wish that there wasn't a series two because it's such a nice ending at the end of season one. And you know that he's not just going to have an idyllic life uh, for half a dozen episodes in season two, so we can assume that that isn't the end of the story. But it, it's in the same way as, for example, I sort of wish that Only Fools and Horses hadn't come back after the uh, the trilogy in 96, because it was just such a perfect ending. Uh, you just sort of think, yeah, it would be nice. It would be, be a nice conclusion. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't really need to, you know go on from that point at the end of series one, you know, because they covered the ground, they've covered what's happened with Marion and Jeff and Keith, you know, and all what's happened, it might be a case of saying, well, everything's happened and all like that. Uh, but, like, the second series just feels like it's, down to well the first series was successful oh we want to keep our uh, main performer we want him to do something else let's try and force a second series and in that case it it doesn't really work if you try and force something like that like you were saying with you know only fools and horses coming back mm, yeah yeah um before we get on to uh, the prequel, I um, just want to ask a couple of questions about uh, the show overall. Just one thing, just want to, uh, DCC, I wanted to ask you to hold this thought. I think that you said there, in the episode where they're talking about divorce proceedings, did he say five years? The past five years, his wife had embarked upon this affair with Jeff, is that right? Apparently, yeah, he, he's quoted as saying, I mean, he's practicing his speech, yeah, and he says for, for the past five years. Okay, well, hold on to that because there might be some significance uh, with that later on. Um, but before we get to the, the prequel, let's just talk a little bit more about the, the overall um, style of Matt. Um, I'll throw that out to the whole group and anybody wants to come into this and just, just, just shout. Um, what are people's thoughts about the, the monologue uh, format itself? When I was watching this, I was thinking of things like, for example, uh, the occasional episode of Hancock, um, things like Alan Bennett's Talking Heads, um, the episode of 
One Foot in the Grave, The Jury, um, with um, Victor by himself. Um, each one of those examples, and please shout out if you've got any other ideas about that, but each one of those examples, they all have their own sort of uh, structure. So, for example, Hancock and something like the, the Radio Ham, he's occupied, he's on the, uh, the CB um, radio. Um, and something like Talking Heads, it's a very sort of, you know, uh, sort of... Uh, you might say formal setting, you've got the person uh, talking to yourself down the lens, but they're in one location throughout. Um, the same with Victor Meldrew, we're hearing his thoughts out loud, but he's in the house the whole time. In Marion and Jeff, although it's all a monologue, he still has, as the song suggests, he's still got um, lots of uh, land, lots of space um, to play with. So what do people think about that? Any other examples of monologues and, and how they work in comparison? Do you remember a couple of um, sketches in a bit of Fry and Laurie with Hugh Laurie just talking into the camera and talking about things that happened? I mean, there were, there were flights of fancy that one where he became an, an assistant to Princess Anne but left because he realised no matter how well he did, they were never actually going to make him <laughs> Princess Anne. But that was the first thing that popped into my head watching it with those because he does seem to be discussing about relationships. And I th- have a fe- one I remember him fishing, but I have a feeling one of them is just in a car. Almost as if the camera is perched on the dashboard. I'm not implying that this is anything more than coincidence, but it's an interesting one. Um, and Box, you had something in mind? Yeah, it's um, with uh, obviously with Marion and Jeff. Um, it also links with uh, uh, Hugo Blick. Now he was the director of um, Marion and Jeff. Um, now there was a similar sort of Thing in the, in 2002, which had Joanna Lumley, uh, which was a series of monologues called Up in Town. It was now um, I think I think Blick did both of them, uh, Marion and Jeff, and Up in Town as well. So it's taken um, whereas Up in Town was a more dramatic thing. That um, it was using Marion and Jeff to make sure that um, they got Rob Brydon to do his uh, character, which he'd had developed over the years, uh, Keith Barrett, and it was um, it was really a case the uh, dramatic device was really there for for us to um to try and see it was something different it was rather than the normal sort of sitcom now it, it has been referred as a mockumentary now it, it isn't in that sort of style Whereas an earlier work with Bryden, uh, Human Remains, and with Julia Davis as well. Now, that was taking the idea of the early millennium, like programs uh, such as Modern Times, which were documentaries about uh, various subjects, and uh, making it a more comedic style about seeing these people 
and Marion and Jeff took uh, the monologue and and twisted it to its own comedic style. If I can just jump in, there is um, there is of course the series Video Diaries from nineteen. I think started nineteen ninety nineteen ninety one ish. So I think there's definitely the influence of that there. Also, can I just quickly mention that Joanna Lumley series? Was it Up in Town? Uh, yeah, it was Up in Town, yeah. Yeah, I, I first saw that six miles above the Atlantic. Somebody decided that that was just the kind of in-flight entertainment people on their way to LA needed. Was this also the same journey where you saw the um, the night shift with Mr. Bennett from Take Heart? No, but that was that was I provided my own night shift. <laughs> KLM decided to provide me with up in town. Um, also, one thing as well. Um, although um, we had Rob Brydon involved with um, Human Remains, of course, Hugo Blick had been involved with another mockumentary, which was Operation Good Guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he he used um, Operation Good Guys um, because uh, there had been uh, various uh, documentaries about the police and all like that. Now Blick uses uses that uh, uh, uses a style uh, say also in Operation Good Guys that he is well observed about the style of these documentaries and he can actually get them as close to being as uh, as they actually are. Now if you take example. Uh, any sort of documentary which you might see now, right, you could almost, thanks to uh, uh, Blick's work, you could almost think, well, is this a spoof or is it not? He blurred the lines between the two. Um, and just to draw some, uh, some parallels with all the bits and pieces, uh, a few years before this, uh, we had the um, ubiquitous camcorder once again in another Baby Cow production, which was the Paul and Pauline Car video diaries. Um, and around about this time as well, I think it's fair to say, late 90s, uh, early zeros, um, that studio-based sitcoms were starting to become sort of passe, um, and things like, for example, The Royal Family uh, were coming to the fore. We're only a year removed from The Office, and of course a lot of people have drawn comparisons between The Office and people like us, which had gone out a couple of years before this, and that was very much the, the mockumentary style as well. Another way, uh, another method of being able to effectively hear the characters um, inner thoughts in people like us. You have um, a narrator on hand in the office. You have the unseen narrator um, and the, uh, the little uh, vox pops and bits and pieces and so on. Um, but something like uh, people like us um, had been uh, that style of documentary which had been seen, say, business documentary such as Travel Tutor and Trouble at the Top, which was taking on, right, let's go here, let's see what people are doing in business and all like that. Um, obviously with uh, Chris Langham's character, you know, being the sort of driving force and you had seen it with him uh, earlier Stephen Fry series, like investigative journalism. Yeah, this is David Lander. Like yeah. So it is sort 
yeah, exactly, sort of coming, really coming back round, mm. if you get what I mean, in that sense. Because Victoria Wood has seen on yeah. TV. Yeah, 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 it, it, it would, you know, do that similar sort of thing. It's a sort of redo of that idea, whereas Victoria Wood had done it during the 80s, people like us are during the late 90s and uh, operating good guys uh, around the turn of the millennium so it had come back round full circle with um, operating good guys uh, like you said the office and you know also Marion and Jeff as well you know taking uh, like you said the video diaries idea the one person the one-on-one sort of view a person talking directly into their camera and having their thoughts and feelings played out let me just interject with a quick shameless plug sitcom club is produced in association with cooked and bombed and as chosen by members of the cooked and bombed forum in a forthcoming podcast in about the next three weeks or so we will be discussing the aforementioned operation good guys now, Ocho, you had uh, another observation with regards to Marion and Jeff. Well, we're just um, on about camcorders in comedy. Do you remember Smith & Jones? Yes. Uh, I mean, yeah. you know, much broader, but they started as a series of sketches, and this would be in the mid-'80s, so fairly novel, and there was a full half-hour special, 1987. Yeah. And I remember there was being something of a comedy phenomenon, uh-huh. people talking about them and... Just sort of, yeah. sort of faded away, but I guess the, the idea of camcorder comedy being novel didn't last very long. Well, it's, it, it, yeah, I, I, I really, I really adored those sketches, um, and I need to get hold of uh, that particular series again just to see some of them. The one that really sticks in my mind is the, um, the, the homemade episode of Grandstand where they're, they're performing their own sort of Olympic games in the back garden. <laughs> And if I remember correctly, Griffiths Jones character, he's sort of playing the Biz Lynham role and he he introduces it by playing the grandstand theme on a tape recorder, but doesn't realise how long the theme actually is and how awkward that's gonna be if he's just sat there in front of the camera whilst he's playing. Um and yeah, you've got that uh that Christmas uh special. Um with the um yeah the, the the toy plane that flies off into the, uh, <laughs> the horizon, um but yeah I was I think that was about what eighty six eighty seven and then within about four years or so you've got you've been framed coming along, which was derived from I think an American format that had been around for a short while and I think in the first episode of that, Jeremy Beadle actually says recognize one of these it's a camcorder they're all the rage, so on and so on. Well, in case in case anybody listening thinking that we're labouring the points about the camcorder is not just its uh, role in Marion and Jeff, but the fact that uh, there are several of them in play in the uh, prequel, uh, which was uh, aired between season one, series two of Marion and Jeff, called A Small Summer Party. DCT, give us a, a summary if you can uh, about A Small Summer Party. A Small Summer Party essentially covers what episode six of series one. Uh, regales by Keith, except this time, in um, I would admit uh, a rather clumsy way, in in that very much sort of having to explain how all these cameras are at one part small summer party. Uh, I count four, incidentally, and even then, some of them are very artistic for what the concept actually is, uh, artistic shots and so forth. Um, but it essentially tells us. Uh, 
shows us from a different angle, mainly, uh, what took place on that second hottest day, um, where Keith eventually found out, uh, discovered that Marion and Jeff are having an affair. However, what is unusual about this, of course, is that, well, for one thing, um, as Mooncat, as you touched upon earlier, um, he, he announces in the first series, five years. Now, it's, yeah, it, it kind of leads to a number of... We do know that this is a prequel, of course, uh, to, 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 to series one, but when it was exactly, we're not entirely sure. However, um, he is at this point, uh, from the get-go, talking to the camera and so forth, so as if it's a common thing, as if he needs an outlet in that capacity. Um, another aspect, of course, is that although we are... Although we break out of the car and in you know into the garden into Keith's you know Keith's house and everything uh, um, from the get go, Marion, Jeff, Reese, and Alan are all consistently uh, unfocused. They're 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 we only get glimpses of them. Uh, we only get you know very brief shots of them. Uh, it's it's very. It's it's meant to heavily imply that these are very much like it, it's almost it's almost very consciously aware of the fact that that they should really just be what we imagine them to be as opposed to actually just seeing them, which almost in a way makes the concept of this one-off episode slightly odd, um, because because even then even in the episode even in this sorry even in this one-off episode we're not actually seeing the full picture so it almost makes it less relevant than it needs to be uh potentially because we get a glimpse of tracy ann overman playing Marin, we get a glimpse of uh steve coogan playing jeff we get um reese uh we 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 only see reese very briefly at the end of the episode but we see uh, alan um with his aquatic camera in his space suit um momentarily uh, wide-eyed, uh, a witness to all, unfortunately, you know, witness predominantly to a lot of the uh, antics that are happening on the first floor in, in the hallway, in the bedrooms and so forth. Um, so it's, yeah, it's it's a very, it's a strange, I, I mean, I, I agree with Ocho, it's, it's a strange, um, it, it's not, it's not, it's not needed. It's, I think it's a very interesting experiment, but it's not necessarily a, a needed one. Yeah, I know what you mean by that. I was thinking as as it was as it was going on um, that it was perfectly interesting for what it was. But uh, the first thing actually that struck me about it was I wonder if anybody had stumbled across this had never seen Marion and Jeff. They just saw on the Radio Times. Oh, there's this thing with Rob Brydon and Tracy Ann Oberman and Steve Coogan. Uh, you'd be a bit puzzled by the end of it if you didn't know any of the the backstory at all. Um, but yes, I mean it was it was interesting enough for from what it was and uh there was some nice little touches and so on um i did feel there was it was over long i thought that some of the dialogue between the uh between marion's family and the neighbors and so on i felt that that was felt like a little bit of padding in there um it's 12 minutes incidentally 12 minutes into the show before we actually get even a glimpse of anybody other than keith um but um Boggins Trophy first, and then Ocho. Boggins Trophy, what were your thoughts on The Small Summer Party? It really doesn't sit well, you know. Obviously, we've had the um, sort of Keith doing his monologues, you know. 
in watching it, it it doesn't sit well as such with um, you know seeing. Okay, it seeing what went on, but it just it feels too stretched at fifty minutes. I mean, yes, you could do half an hour, but maybe it would have been its limit. But fifty minutes, it like uh, it does seem it does seem full of filler. It does. Yeah. Um, Ocho, what were your thoughts? One of the problems, because of course earlier on I went off on one, didn't I? <laughs> Though that wasn't the topic in hand. And where I'd stopped was that thing about you first see Marion and then she's gone. And they actually have that. I, th- I think you could possibly explain it as being somebody breathing on a microphone with no pop shield. But you have this sound. And it's like, right, you know. That was a bit too horror movie-ish. And there are a couple of places... I mean, like, when you have that panning over the pictures and the song is playing. And it's like, yes, yes, I get it. I get it. I get it. But also it's like, hang on a minute. This is non-diegetic music and sound effects. It's right. Are, are we having a fly-on-the-wall documentary or not? And there's, there, there, there's another place where somebody goes in and you get that sound but it just doesn't quite sound like a natural uh you know breath on a microphone noise it sounds like they're trying to underline it's the it's the slow acoustic cover version of marion and jeff laying it out all before you and uh, no it didn't work mind you we did have tim wilton in from the dustbin men that's always good Yes, um, I was very pleased to see um, Boy Clark earlier on. He's the uh, the character who first confronts uh, Marion and cleans up the, uh, the broken glass. Uh, Boy Clark is one of the main players in BBC Wales sitcom Satellite City, uh, which we'll be talking about in a future episode as well. Um, and actually another thing, um, this all being edited together from different camcorders, that really kept pulling me out of it. It didn't add to the realism. Yeah, because it's like, oh right, they've just they've found somebody brought another camcorder, and they put it in the living room, and there's an argument going on. Who's editing this together? It's it's like, yeah, can you you know, it's like if you're just gonna have one, cam- be disciplined, find a way for one camcorder, not necessarily to catch all the footage, you know, all the incident described, but to convey all the incident described in some way, or. Or just don't just have it as a just have it as a staged thing. Oh, and that flaming wasp, or oh, bee, <laughs> is it floating across the the paddling pool? Oh, come on! We, we, do, do you really have to just keep hitting us in the face? We know the relevance of the wasp. You don't have to. It, it's almost like oh, we'll put the wasp, and then everybody will cheer when they see the wasp. <laughs> well, the thing is, I I would say out of context, if you hadn't seen. The anecdote. If you hadn't seen him anecdote about this, this would seem uh, new and interesting. If, if it's 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 kind of works in the same strange but way of if you. The watched... thing is, is is you can't sort of say. Well, if you completely pull it out of context, it works. Yeah, if you... but it's not out of context. This is made by the people who made the first ten episodes of Marion and Jeff. Yes. I, in fact, something else has just popped into my head. Um, you're not originally in Frasier. Uh, it's probably not the best comparison, but you know, originally Fraser Maris Crane was supposed to 
be a cast character. And I don't know at what point, I don't know if it was after shooting had started, but somewhere somewhere before the point, the actress, an actress was supposed to be seen on screen. They realised that all the descriptions that had been put in leading up to an appearance would make her impossible to cast. And it's a bit that thing, you know, Marion and Jeff themselves should be impossible to cast by the time we've got to the end of series one. I mean, the point is, really, with um, uh, that special is, you know, normally normally when Coogan and Bryden work together, it works. You know, they've done so many different things. They have. They've done the trip. They've done um, Cruise of the Gods. But in this together, it, it they just seem like they're disjointed. They're trying to do... Uh, you know, their own performances without sort of bouncing off each other. Also, Keith suddenly seems to be a bit of a broad character when you compare it with everybody else performing down. Keith suddenly gets a little bit more sitcom-ish when we see him next to mumbling people. I I would say that, I would say, on the other hand, though, that it's... um... With Keith, though, he, he works better alone. And it, it, I found it very strangely... Um, I found it very strange that uh, he reacts to... When he's finally got Charles Karen turns up and then uh, the, the, the other new neighbour, and he's in, he's, he's, in the, he's in the lounge with everyone for the parties there. And apart from Marin Jeff, who are otherwise, you know, occupied. And I like, I like the fact that he suddenly almost is overwhelmingly felt, feels reassured because he doesn't feel lonely. And it's just a very quick moment, but I think Charles almost acts as uh, the audience. I think Charles, you know, like, not even Karen, but Charles is, you know, because he, he even at one point comes up to the, you know, and goes, so what, what happens next then? You know, <laughs> it's almost... Um, um, but, but then again, it's almost... Um, the, 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 the thing that bugged me predominantly about it was the... Uh, establishing of, of whose camera was what and where um also the fact that you're introduced to this these um these other characters Bryn, dorothy and eros eros but they're not referenced i've been told by eros a welsh person yeah he's, was, was eros mentioned in the uh no not no, at all I nor thought, was Bryn thought, or Dor- not, yeah. um and and that's the thing and suddenly you've got this whole other thing where uh you've got this one-sided conversation where um eros doesn't say anything uh at all barely and yet, um, you have this brief moment where you see Keith talking to him, and it's revealed that um, he, that Eros would have been second in line, as it were, had Keith not got there after Gary had died. Um, that that um, and and so, but then you've got that very creepy moment where um, he he encounters. It's a very strange parallel where you've got um, uh, Alan. Alan, the, the child, one, um, with, with the camera, with the aquatic camera, and he's running. He runs upstairs, he pans up, and you get a brief glimpse of Jeff at the top of the stairs. And then he runs downstairs, and there's the other parallel of the rejected, the other man, which is, so the other extreme, which is Eros. That and, did, oh, that, was, that didn't work for me, the intercutting, the making it scary. Again, it's like, who is, who is editing this? Because it's like, right now, now it's not natural. We are watching edited footage. And that means an editor, and I again completely pulled. It's 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 kind of like you you you're either naturalistic or you're not. Yeah, it would have perhaps worked better if it had been sort of if it said it was stall initially, and say it had come from just uh, the one person's camcorder, and they'd found a way 
to make sure that all the key elements were in there. It would have made logical sense, yeah. I th- yeah, it could have been done in the writing. Yeah, well, why do you need four cameras at this small summer party? And also the fact that um, straight after that scene where he encount- where uh, Alan encounters Eros, you've got... Um, You've got him, very, very creepy moment, where you've got the remainder of the party listening to the Welsh music from the beginning um, in, in the lounge. And then you've got um, Iros uh, showing uh, Alan some karate moves and then his flick knife. And then you've got them, for no real relevant reason in the garden, chucking the aquatic camera to each other. And, of course, that ends up in the pool, hence, which then leads to the ominous, um, foreboding bee floating across the you know the top shot um but of course then there there you know that it it shouldn't bother me but it does it does bother me the fact that there's the massive distinction uh, you know uh, di- difference between bee and wasp bee and wasp it keeps going yeah. back and forth and it's superfluous that shot anyway because um does keith not actually say uh, at the beginning of that episode even if you hadn't seen Marion and jeff he does actually he's, he's fishing the bee slash wasp out of the pool and says that line again even a, a dead bee can sting yeah, he says even a dead bee can sting, even though in the ep- in episode six of series one he says even a dead wasp can sting. And so we've established that it, that it's in the pool anyway. We don't need to see it pass by the lens. Yeah, it's 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 kind of. But then again, um, there. I mean, it's like you're saying about the editing of and ha- trying to make it slightly horror movie-ish. But then again, it's also that element of tension because you've got the clinking of the glasses. It keeps coming back to you know the glasses that are kind of vibrating on you know on, on the. Uh, on the on the table, close up of those. You've got the train falling off the the, the, tr- the toy train falling off the tracks. You've got the sound of the child breathing in the background as it's running from place to place. You've got the sound of the mower, and then you've of course you've got that long awkward feedback on the microphone as it, we hear. We pretty much gather that you've got Keith in the garden doing the presentation. You've got Marion and Jeff having a long kiss, um, uh, on the off you know off the microphone and it's going and you get all the feedback from that so there's a big use of sound in it the sound i don't I, the sound i thought was pretty appropriate for what it was um generally it was also interesting that i i, I there is a little bit of confusion though as to sort of reese because reese we don't see till the end he's only slightly older than the other one and yet he's playing this kind of techno music in his room and he's obsessed with serial killers but he only seems what like i don't know he doesn't seem that older you could argue that he plays that loud music in his room so he doesn't have to listen to oh, yeah. the arguments and other things. But, um, yeah. But he's, he's only six, isn't he? That's the thing. Isn't he, like, really... I mean, that's the thing. It, it, he's... If, if you could just put in one little line sort of indicating the reason for the loud music is the kid, you know, is trying to... Drag, and he just wants something... Something loud. Just the, the, t- the the age didn't seem to make sense to me. I like sort of just playing music loud at that age. I don't. I didn't realize. You know, it just did, didn't sort of. I mean, maybe like nine or ten, but sort of. How how far back are we supposed to be going though in regards to the, the prequel? Because when um, Keith relates, for example, yeah, he says he's obsessed with uh, serial killers and so on. Um, how far back are we going to the second hottest day of the year? That that's that that's where that's where it gets even more bizarre because. Um, you've got these pictures of cross mummy, cross mummy, mummy cross, mum and Keith, but you know a couple of those are pretty grotesque, um, clearly illustrated by the same. But that's the thing that that that's why it even makes less sense because even if there's even say if this was five years ago, it makes no sense at all. <laughs> um, if this was about a year ago, 
I, I yeah, I, I think I think the affair had been going on for some time. So I wouldn't say it was five years ago, but I would say that maybe it was about a year ago. But it still doesn't make any sense to me the age situation between Reese and Alan because Alan is the younger one. Uh, that much I, it, it seems apparent. But yeah, Reese, it, it's still the fact that we see them both at the end, and one slightly taller than the other. He's still wearing a spacesuit. It's not like he's a moody teenager. He's still it. Yeah, something just doesn't add up about it for me. But I still, I still like it. Uh, I still like the episode. I still I, something about it. I'm fond of. I'm a big fan of. I like Hugo Blick. I like. Um, uh, there's a, what I what I appreciate about the, this one-off episode is that. Um, Although it's not necessarily appropriate for what it is, um, I do appreciate the direction in terms of um, the fact that Hugo Blick then went on to direct the Shadow Line, and the Shadow Line has a slight level of you can tell he's got a comedic background, he's got a slight level of absurdity to it, but it's also quite dark and quite um, you know, and it's quite ominous. And he's quite, he's very when he wants to be, he's very good at foreboding. Uh, obviously, here it wasn't entirely necessary. But as I say, I think this was essentially an experiment, really. Um, this may sound like a strange thing to say, but um, one thing I would say in, in its defence is that it, it was better than what I was expecting before I had any idea of... Um, before I'd seen it, and before I had any idea of even who the other players in it were, apart from Rob Ryden. What I was actually anticipating was... Uh, I didn't imagine the, the the idea of it being filmed on on the camcorders. I just imagined it being like a sort of a, a straightforward performance, and I'd sort of pictured it uh, as if it was um, Tracy Ann Oberman and and Steve Coogan were uh, clearly having this um, uh, affair, uh, and, and the only person who was oblivious about it was was Keith. I just imagined it being a much more sort of straightforward sort of. Uh, sitcom piece, not necessarily with an audience, um, but I just had a, a more sort of mainstream view as to what it was going to be like. So at least I was, I was, I was interested. I was, I was more intrigued to see it than if it had just been a straightforward uh, retelling um, of Keith's monologue uh, with no other sort of surprises in it at all. Um, any other final thoughts on uh, that particular uh, uh, preload at all? Yeah. Okie dokie. Spats! Well, it featured a burger, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. The line from the line from Marion and Jeff to Spats is Marion and Jeff, small summer party, burger, Spats. There you go. Um, I also think it's important to note that there's certain differences as well uh, in regards to... The, aside from the fact that we have that whole subplot of, of Bryn and Dorothy and Eros, which is never mentioned previously, which seems quite important. I mean, it seems the fact that he's gone that far in series one to elaborate on the situation. It seems kind of slightly weird to forget that because, um, it's almost like Eros is like the complete extreme of Jeff and Keith is kind of the middle ground in a way. Like, um, Eros is kind of like completely doomed and miserable uh, and, uh, and just consistently gloomy and silent. Um, whereas Jeff is sort of overly, arrogant and so forth i mean it also seems significant that um i mean nev nev, uh, nev uh, grabs you know something that's omitted from um, keith's anecdote in episode six of series one but nev chucks you know the reason that that uh jeff is wearing his very short um gown uh keith's very short dressing gown is because um nev's chucked his suit on the barbecue and you have that whole element of him trying to help him 
give him his keys. Keith giving Jeff his keys. Um, so there's certain omissions. It, it, for me, yeah, that's the thing. It's it's not something that was needed, but I do. I I I I mark the small summer party as an interesting experiment. And also, I think it's all fair to say that the one if we've all watched the DVD uh, of this as opposed to the original broadcast version. The version that we all saw is from the DVD, which is the director's cut. Yeah, I'm just looking up here because the version we all watched uh, was an hour long, and apparently the original transmission length is 50 minutes. So it's not, it's not that. It's still going to be too loose at 50 minutes, really. I was kind of thinking, oh, if it's half an hour, then yeah, I can. I've been completely unfair. If it was 10 minutes, even worse. So, final points on Marion and Jeff and. I'll throw this over to yourself, DCT, as we mentioned at the, the top of the podcast. Uh, we're not going to go too much uh, into detail with regards to Series 2. Um, but the question is going to be asked, particularly as um, in a small summer party, we've got the, the child's drawing which says Mummy and Keith. And as you mentioned earlier on, uh, the affair had been going on for five years. It's it's implied, but not said at this point, that uh, the kids may or may not be Keefs. Um, presumably that's something that uh, is expanded in Series 2. Yes, I certainly think there is, um, uh, there is a hint that the younger of the two um, is, is not his. Um, I believe in, I mean, with Series 2 as well... Um, for starters, although although this is something that we're we're not elaborating on hugely, yes, I don't think it's established hugely, but essentially there's certainly an indication that at least one of them, the younger of the two, which in this case is Alan, um, is the uh, is potentially Jeff's, which which actually makes sense in terms of the prequel because he is the one with the camera, he is the one who uh, raises up sort of in that sort of uh, as Ojo described horror horror editing moment of um uh, up to jeff and so forth and I, I i don't want to elaborate too much on series two but um one thing to bear in mind is that whereas you've got 10 episodes of 10 minutes each or so for series one series two is six episodes of half an hour each and the impression i've got from that is that it's far more structured it's far more of an arc going on um they're less anecdotal or moments past they're actually more about the present and so yeah, I think there's I think there's more there's a there's a far greater plot development in series two. Grand. Um and as I always ask each of you at the end of each podcast, are you intrigued to see more of the shows? We've obviously got an entire second series yet to come. Bog and Strove, you'll ask yourself first, are you intrigued to see not only series two but of course the rest of the episodes of series one? Uh yeah, yeah. I'm interested to see how the actual how it develops for um, Keith over the next series, and where where he really goes from, you know, from his lowest point, um, where he goes from there, you know, if he does um, uh, turn himself around from um, uh, where he is at the end of uh, series one. And Ocho. I don't care what happens to Keith. Well, that's uh, that's a very uh, brutally frank uh, statement. DCT, um, what about yourself? Are you intrigued to see uh, all of Series 2? Yeah, I I feel that although 
it could have ultimately ended with series one and having him go out on a on a high note, albeit slightly bittersweet because he's just he's a, he's in a car accident first on his way to a job interview. But yeah, I mean the thing is is that it, it's unusual to then see the prequel because not only is it in you know partially unnecessary, it also puts a further dampener on the situation regarding Keith. But series two. It, the fact that they are fully developed half an hour episodes as opposed to the 10 minute blurbs and anecdotes and observations i yeah i i, I would like to uh, yeah i think i think the i think series 2 as i said i think that's far i think that will develop further i think that's about plot development that's that by this by this point we know as much as we need to know about the past and about the background so i i'd like to think that series 2 allows keith to develop in the present and that because of the uh, extension of, of time we have with him each episode hopefully there is a greater plot development and an overall a bigger arc that pushes him forward because ultimately series one was about him blend you know reminiscing about the past yeah um and uh for myself yes uh, i'm i'm very keen uh, to see season two um and I'm not quite sure how I'll take to the new length because I quite like the fact that there were little ten-minute bits and pieces, um, and it, it wasn't uh, in the same way as it, you know you see something on maybe like the television listings and so on. Um, you can just catch an episode of any old time. Um, so I'll see how it, I'll see how it works with the uh, the new uh, sort of uh, half an hour length. But yes, I'm intrigued to to see how it goes, and I hope that however it ends, and I'm sure it'll end on on some sort of high note. Um, Let's hope that they don't bring him back again in ten years' time. Um, in the same way as, for example, David Brent suddenly came back, uh, and just by the fact that he came back, it sort of undid the ending from the office. Uh, so let's hope that you know enough's enough, and then it leaves uh, Keith hopefully in a happy place. Um, Can I just um, jump in for a quick callback? Because of course, at the end of podcast one, still game. We had a. Would you like to pursue it? Uh, I've I've been through all of series one. I'm I'm now on series two of Still Game. So I had just just to let anybody who listened to that one, I I, I have actually pursued it. I have ploughed on. I intend to go right up to the end of series six. How are we all doing with um up Pompeii? I hope that by this point everybody's got to up the convicts and that we've seen all the films. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. Now, Boggs, I actually believe you when you when you say that. I, I assume that you have done that, but. But Ocho, yeah, you're letting the side then. Uh, DCT. Well, I tell you what, I'll go and finish quiet. up the Alps. I'll, I'll go get funding together. <laughs> and don't forget that business with the Bee Gees as well. Cucumber Castle was um, finished was, and transmitted. It's a full I think it was, thing. Yeah, I think it was finished before it started. Um, and yeah, uh, <laughs> DCT, how, how are you getting on uh, with Frank? Well, still game, still game. I'm a huge fan of, so I've seen all of them and wish they did more. Um, with up Pompeii, uh, no, but I, I never, I, the thing is it, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a, I feel that this is probably going to be a, a, an ongoing situation for me personally, but with certain elements, I mean, yeah, up Pompeii I enjoyed, but ultimately it's not something that I, I, I don't think I could go through the repetition of it frequently. There, it's, it, it does, there, it, it's quite repetitive i find um i say that in the in the most affectionate way i mean don't get me wrong i enjoyed i've enjoyed what i've seen and i enjoyed the film which i finally got around to watching um 
the original film. But yeah, I'm not sure I could get through every single thing. The more th- if we're talking about Frankie Howard, the one thing I do want to see for my own personal benefit is the Craig Ferguson story from 1989, uh, which was aired a couple of years later on Channel Four, um, which features Frankie Howard and Peter Cook uh, with Craig Ferguson. I'd be very intrigued to see that. That's 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 something I'm 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 desperately want to hunt down. Well, if anybody uh, from Channel 4 is listening to this podcast, please pop that on 4OD. That would be very much appreciated. Um, Ocho, is Cucumber Castle uh, a sequel or a prequel to Clopper Castle? No. Though, of course, Clopper Castle does have its own link with the pop world of the 60s, being co-written by Patrick Campbell Lyons of the 60s group Nirvana. Sorry, that's more information than you asked for, isn't it? It is. Sorry, yes, it I'm is. terribly sorry. I do really like 60s Bee Gees, you see, uh, and was very excited to see Cucumber Castle. Less excited about five minutes in and kind kind of rather sad by the end of it. Did you actually watch all of Cucumber Castle? Yes. It was a while ago, but yes, I did watch all of Cucumber Castle. Well, that's coming on a future episode of the, uh, the sitcom club. Fair enough, if we have to. I'd rather they'd made a movie of Odessa, but there we go. <laughs> It's just such a shame that we never got that Terry and Jim movie. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know you know, ever actually proposed. You know, you know the things that have because Bee Gees and Frankie Howard back together again for Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, nineteen seventy-eight. But that's a discussion for another time. But uh, hearing Donald Pleasance singing, I think it's a discussion for another time and probably a completely different podcast. And finally, what we like to call further reading, although it's not reading, it never is reading uh, because this is not a book group. Uh, so for the viewing slash listening, well, I think it's all viewing in this case, um, DCT, uh, you mentioned to me, um, off air, you mentioned the, the Keith Barrett show. Now, uh, that is a uh, continuation, of course, of Mario and Jeff, uh, but it's, it's quite, quite different to uh, the show itself. The Keith Barrett show was in a strange situation of having a fictional character presenting a chat show, which seems actually entirely appropriate, given that it was also partly produced by Baby Cow, who had, of course, Steve Coogan and Alan Partridge doing exactly the same thing. Except the difference is, with The Keith Barrett Show, uh, of course by Rob Brydon, um, he's interviewing celebrity couples uh, with intent to find the secret to a successful marriage. Uh, There were 13 episodes made over two series and a Christmas special. Since then, five of the couples have since split, and another two have died. So... Whether it's particularly successful or not, potentially not. Nevertheless, um, it's certainly, it's, it's, uh, I think there are occasional references. There are references to his boys, there's references to Marion and Jeff, but they're very throwaway. Uh, There's nothing new you learn out of it, I think, from what I remember. Um, But I may rewatch, I may give them a rewatch after I've uh, got around to series two. Cool. Um, I'm moving on from Keith Barrett, but staying with Rob Brydon. Uh, these days, uh, he's most often seen as presenter of uh, Would I Lie to You, panel game from season three onwards. And a little bit earlier than that, of course, he was Uncle Bryn um, in Gavin and Stacey. Then there's certain comparisons uh, uh, between uh, Keith and Uncle Bryn, certainly in as much as they, they are you know, somewhat naive. Um, I think Keith more so than Bryn. Um, but in between all of those, uh, Human Remains uh, with Julia Davis, which is a nice little uh, set of, I'm right in thinking, half a dozen uh, individual little sort of plays in the same style as, say, Coogan's Run, for example. Except better, yes. Ah, controversial. 
Now, as a big fan of Coogan's Run, that's a controversial statement, but we can fight that out after we've finished um, uh, jousting about uh, the British Empire. Um, and the other thing I was going to mention as well, it was a show that I really liked, but but, but no one ever saw it, because it sort of went out at 11 o'clock at night and didn't have much in the way of advertising. Uh, but it is available on DVD, uh, Director's Commentary. Oh no, I did watch a couple of episodes at the time. Um, I think it would have been better if he'd added other directors, because it did get a bit one-note. Yeah. And it seemed like the same sort of jokes over and over, really, did by the end of the series. Great idea yeah. for a show. Really yeah, great yeah, idea for a good. show. But it, it didn't quite, you know, with really the um, same thing over and over. It just, yeah. So next week, podcast number four, we will be discussing the Stephen Moffat school-based sitcom Chalk. Uh, look out for details of the episode in question like I say follow us on Twitter the sitcom club and you'll find full details of the episode that we'll be talking about and you can send your feedback in relation to the episode to feedback at sitcomclub.com or just tweet us your comments and we will read them out on the show so gentlemen thank you very much indeed uh, for being here once again and thank you very much indeed for listening this has been the sitcom club <laughs>